Well, what's been on my mind this week is, um, <clears throat> is how mean people can be. You know how mean people can be? A couple um, recent examples of this. Many of you are aware that our church is participating in the 40 Days for Life. What are we doing? We are saying we want to pray that God, by his sovereign grace, would stir the hearts of our government and our citizens so that the atrocity of abortion would finally come to an end in our country and around the world. That's why we're there. So we're out on the streets on Mondays, and there's many other believers in our city that are there Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and so forth. But we're there Mondays. And we have our signs up, and we are participating in this prayerful and peaceful vigil. And I've been talking to different people. I've been there myself. I've been talking to other people. And there's some pushback that people have experienced. In fact, one man drove by while our people were on the street, and you know what he yelled out his window? I love abortion! I thought to myself, I I love abortion? I wouldn't even think that a pro-choicer would say, I love abortion. But this is the world that we live in. I love abortion. Another example this week when our prime minister announced that his wife, and we're praying for her healing, has the coronavirus. Someone posted on Twitter to our prime minister, I hope you get really sick. This is the world we live in. People can be incredibly mean, incredibly hateful, toward other people. In fact, that's the natural bent of humanity. But fortunately, we have a word from God. Without a word from God, people get very, very mean, hateful, and cruel. Love is not the norm. That's not our default. We're not naturally loving and selfless and others-oriented. Love is not the norm. It's the exception. And yet, in the word of God, Christians are called to act differently, lovingly, because Jesus has acted differently, lovingly, toward us. Love, therefore, is not like an optional aspect of Christian living. Love is not a spiritual gift that's dispensed to a select few believers in the church and everyone else can kind of do their own thing. No, love is something that the whole body of Christ around the world is called to exercise. It's not a personality trait. You might say, well, other people have, it's just easier for them. They're, they're loving people and I'm not a loving person. Eh. Now, love is not a personality trait that only some are permitted to possess. Love is not limited to a particular ethnic group or confined to a particular border or region of our world. Hear this, church. Love is a necessary and essential expression of biblical Christianity. We're going to see that in God's word today. We've been studying as a community of faith this little epistle near the end of the New Testament, the epistle of 1 John. And we've entitled this series, Basic Christianity, and I've stressed this. When we hear the word basic, we might think, oh, like baby Christianity or boring Christianity. No, no, no. We're talking about foundational Christianity. And the book of 1 John essentially revolves around two themes. 
the need to believe certain things and the need to act in certain ways to affirm the authenticity of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so depending on what chapter you're in, you're receiving messages like that. But in chapter 3, which is the one we're studying today, chapter 3, verses 11 to 24, what we're going to learn is that all genuine Christians will act actively love others. All genuine Christians will actively love others. So as we explore this text together, it might be a good idea for you to be asking yourself this very basic question. Do I love other people? And just mull that over a little bit. Do I love other people? Hmm. I think I do. Do I really love other people? By the time we get to the end of this biblical text today, I think the question will be super clear for you to answer because we have a test that's provided to us, a little test we can take, that will answer the question, yes or no, do I actually love other people? And so as we enter into this, let me also just say that we're not going to be called to love other people because it's compulsory. You know, you go to school, there's compulsory subjects and optional subjects. We're not called like, oh man, stink. I got to go love people. That's not the motive. Rather, we are compelled to love others because we have encountered ultimate love in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I've divided this up as I often do into sort of bite-sized pieces. And if you're taking notes or you just have a really good memory, commit this to your memory. This is the first point of my message today. It's this, that love is an evidence of eternal life. Love is an evidence of eternal life. In fact, it's the foundational evidence of eternal life. Don't take my word for it. Join me in 1 John chapter 3, and let me just start by reading a few verses for you. Verse 11 says, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning. In other words, we're not going to receive anything today that hasn't been already taught elsewhere in the word of God. For this is the message that you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Jesus taught this decades before the epistle of 1 John was written. Before the church was founded, Jesus was already teaching this. Love God and love your neighbor. How am I supposed to love my neighbor? Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Well, I know how to do that because I take care of myself pretty good. That's how I'm supposed to love you. And that's how you're supposed to love me. But in order to help us to understand this, the writer then takes us back to the very beginning of time. And he gives us an illustration. In verse 12, the Bible says, we should not be, this is a negative illustration, we should not be like Cain. Who is Cain? The eldest son of Adam and Eve. You remember Cain? Not a lot of people name their children Cain. Have you noticed that? Cain, Judas, no, we're not naming our kids that because... These individuals are prototypes of the world. They're prototypes of the world. They represent everything we don't want to be. So a negative illustration, we should not be like Cain, 
who was of the evil one. Well, what did he do? He murdered his brother. Think about this for a moment, brothers and sisters. Murder is a pretty despicable sin. We would probably say it's the greatest crime you could ever commit. It's disgusting to snuff out someone's life. How many generations did it take for human beings to invent murder? One, the very first baby ever born into the world was a murderer. What does that say about humanity, by the way? He murdered his brother. Now you ask the question, why did he murder his brother? What was his motive? Well, the Bible asks that question. Why did he murder him? And here's the answer. Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Notice the shift now from Cain to the world. Cain hated his brother, and so he murdered his brother. So don't be surprised that the world hates you. Because apart from God, that's the default. When Cain walked away from God, he became a murderer because he was a hater. So as soon as we step away from God, that's the default. You see that? There's there's some even in the church today that try to tell us that people are born good. Can you imagine that? That people have a natural bent towards righteousness and selflessness and philanthropy and all that. No. Apart from God, this is what humanity is like. We know, so now switching gears, speaking of the church, we know that we, that is the body of Christ, have passed out of death into life. How do we know that? Because we love the brothers. It's an evidence of true conversion. Whoever does not love abides in death. So the opposite then is true. Notice he's teaching us using pluses and minuses, positives and negatives. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We'll just pause there. Let's just kind of dissect this a little bit. Again, the first baby ever to be born snuffed out the life of his brother Abel. And again, in this text, Cain is a prototype of the world. And then we're basically told the world is characterized by hatred. But you're not in the world anymore. You're supposed to be different. Your life has been transformed by the life giver, by the creator of the world, by the Lord Jesus himself. Now, as you assess your own life, again, the question comes forward, what motivated Cain's murder of his brother, Abel? Hatred. Essentially, if you think about hatred, you could probably write various definitions, and you may or may not like this one, but I think at the end of the day, hatred is essentially wishing for the non-existence of someone who exists, is it not? It's like, I wish that person didn't exist. I hate that person. I wish they weren't here. They exist, but I wish they'd never been born. And maybe when you were children, you would actually put that into words. I remember as a kid, I'd say to my brother, I hate you. I'm going to kill you. Well, I'm 
a little more mature now, I would never say that. But on the level of motive, is it possible that that kind of thinking still creeps into your mind at times when you confront someone or you meet someone that you just despise, you wish you'd never met? Maybe it's someone that has deeply, deeply wounded you and hurt you, offended you, taken something from you, committed an injustice against you. And in your heart, you thought to yourself, I I wish that person had never been born. Or you thought in your heart, man, drop dead, or I'll kill you. Or maybe more subtly, attitudes like, why does that person seem to get more favor from God than I've received? Isn't it interesting how in life we quickly forget our blessings and we zero in on what we don't have? I mean, you you could test children on this. You know, you you could put a a cookie jar uh, on the counter full of cookies and say, you know, you can have one or two or three cookies every day, get into the habit, and then take a single cookie and put it on the counter and say, don't touch the cookie. And what's going to happen in the psyche of the child? All eyes are going to be on the cookie they can't have, and they're not even thinking about the cookies they can have. This is what human beings are like. We're innately jealous. We're covetous. We wonder, why does that person have what I don't have? Why is God holding out on me? That lie that the serpent planted in Adam and Eve's minds in Genesis chapter 3 continues to be told and asked over and over again. And a lie essentially is, God is a cosmic killjoy. He wants to rob you of your opportunities. I mean, God said to Adam and Eve, you can eat from any tree in the garden. Look at all the cookie jars out there that you could enjoy. But this singular tree, I don't want you to eat from that one. Just this one cookie. Don't touch that cookie. Well, all of a sudden it's like, all eyes are on that cookie, right? And this is what humanity is like apart from the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit of God in our lives. We are naturally bent toward hatred. Now that mindset, when you come to the faith, come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we believe in something called regeneration. We call it being born again. When God invades our lives through his Holy Spirit, convicts us of sin, exposes us to the gospel message, and we repent and reach out in faith and receive the free gift of eternal life, A spiritual transformation has taken place in our lives, and we are now new creatures in Christ. Now, we're not fully sanctified yet. We're waiting to get to heaven for that. But we are now increasingly becoming like Jesus Christ, and now we are well-resourced because we have a word of God, we have a spirit of God, and we have the people of God to hold us accountable to live the spiritual life. And when all that happens, things are different. So you're like, well, how do I know what a regenerated person looks like? How do I grow in my assurance of faith? 
Well, one of the things that God's word is like crystal, 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 crystal clear on is that you will be characterized by radical love. Check it out. It says, we know that we have passed, this is verse 14, out of life into death. Why? How do I know that? Oh, because I prayed a prayer. I walked an aisle. I knelt by an altar. I signed a tract. Well, let's just read on. Because we love the brothers. The love that Christ has extended to us will be demonstrated and manifested in our interaction with others. I will love you, and you will love me. This is the word of God. And so the opposite is also true. If we hate people, our assurance goes down and down and down and down. Now, actually, it's interesting. In verse 15, there's this categorical statement that is made at the end of verse 15 that says, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So this is a curious statement. It lines up with 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 6 to 10. That's one of the damnation lists in the New Testament where it says, if you do this, you do this, you do this, you do this, you do this. It has a bunch of things in there. You're a swindler, you're an adulterer, and so forth. You will not inherit the kingdom of God. So then you're scratching your head thinking, okay, so does that mean that no one can be saved because everyone has sinned? Or does that mean that we believe in some sort of like work salvation because, oh man, I, I, I did swindle someone once. So does that mean I'm eternally cut off from the word of God? And the, and the answer to that as we compare scripture to scripture is no. The way we reconcile this is to say that a person who is habitually characterized by these things yeah, that person's not saved. There are people who commit these sins. Think of David. David had a man killed, murdered, essentially, in order to get his wife. So we got uh, deceit. We have murder. We have adultery. But in the book of Acts, David's called a man after God's own heart. So it's like, is there a contradiction in Scripture? No. But David repented of those things. So one could say that if you murder... If you commit adultery, if you lie and you repent, you did those things, but you're not those things. But if you did those things and you continue to do those things and you don't repent of those things, then you are those things, then you are an adulterer, that's your title, a murderer, a liar, that's characteristic of your life. And this, I believe, is what God is trying to get us to assess. We cannot live our lives in habitual, ongoing, unrepentant sin. And say, yeah, but I'm I'm a follower of, of God's. I can do what I want. No. No, no. First John doesn't allow us to draw that conclusion. If we follow the Lord Jesus Christ, our lives must continuously and habitually be characterized by greater and greater love for our fellow man. That's God's word to us. So we're, we're into preaching God's word, but we're also into applying God's word. So just some thoughts for you to consider. I want you to consider your own attitudes, and I'll consider mine too at this point. And just ask myself questions like, is it, is it possible that I hate people? Now, 
There's a difference, of course, between hating a certain action or activity. There's a lot of things people do. I, like, I hate that action. We should hate certain actions. And folks, we may not even like certain personalities. It's like we're not all going to be best friends with everyone else who's ever existed. But there's a difference between maybe not liking certain personality characteristics or certain attitudes or not liking certain sins and hating people. So I need to ask, am I a loving man? And I, I can't deceive myself. I think a lot of people deceive themselves into sort of like a fake form of love. I mean, fake love is kind of an oxymoron, I know, but I'll, I'll use that language today nevertheless. Some people deceive themselves into fake love. They, they, they convince themselves that they're loving, but they're actually not. What do I mean by that? Well, how about, how about these examples? How about the person that loves to take a stand for other people? That loves to stand up for injustice, but actually they're, deep down they're doing it because they want to look righteous. You know, like the goody two-shoes sort that's always running around helping everybody, but when you start to assess and analyze, well, yeah, they're always posting their accomplishments on social media. They're always bragging about how righteous they are, how committed they are to social justice, and no one else can you know, hold a candle to them. That's not loving. Many of the loving acts that we will commit toward other people, no one will ever know about. We do them in private. We do them in secret. Or, increasingly so with the rise of special interest groups in our culture. Notice how splintered our culture has become, where there's all these special interest groups and this group standing for these rights, 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 and this group standing for these rights. But did you notice that a lot of people are standing for the rights of a group that they're part of, but not for the rights of a group they're not part of? Is that really loving? When you actually are the primary beneficiary of the call that you're issuing to the world to bless you? That's not a selfless love. That's a selfish love. People speaking up for groups because, well, I'm in that group, and I want you to pity me. I want you to provide for me. I want you to do something for me because it's my group. It's not really pure love. Or those that practice philanthropy, they give millions of dollars sometimes away, but there's always a string attached. Yeah, but I, but I want my name on the street sign, or I want my name on the building, or I want my little gold plaque on the pulpit. Is this selfless love, or is there something in there that desires recognition? Or I love people, but only if they're beautiful, because it makes me look more beautiful. Notice how people like to hang around with people that make them look good. So beautiful people don't hang around with ugly people. They hang around with beautiful people because it makes them look more beautiful. It's like I want to be part of the in crowd. It's like back to high school all over again. I'm going to hang around with the in crowd but if you look at the model of Jesus, Jesus hung around with people who lived on the fringes of society. That's true love. When we associate with those that may not normally draw our eye or our attention. Or another act of false love is when we affirm 
a bad decision, a sinful activity in someone else. Parents can sometimes fall into this mistake, this um, poor parenting style by, you know, so committed to the relationship that I'm never going to confront. I'm going to kind of actually facilitate negative choices, bad decisions, because I don't want my child to dislike me. Is that loving? Sometimes the most loving thing you can do is take your foot and proverbially a good kick up the backside. Tough love is biblical love. But in all of this, if you're thinking to yourself, well, I'm still confused. I'm still not sure what true biblical love looks like. Well, we don't have to look any further than Jesus because Jesus models for us True biblical love. And so as we come back to the text, verse 16, 17, and 18, we're invited to take this love test. If you're ready to take a test, and I know, I know school's out, so we can. It's the beginning of March break. Probably not thinking about tests and exams a whole lot, but today we're invited to take a test. And the test is outlined as follows. By this, we know love. That he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Wow. I mean, this, okay, Jesus, I'm into the whole, like, you know, giving a few bucks away and maybe, you know, helping someone across the street, but this is a little radical. Are you telling me that biblical love is about laying down my life for others? Yeah, that's the essence of the gospel. That's why we're here today, because Jesus has done that very thing for us. That is radical. Jesus taught this. Again, this is not new. Jesus taught us in Matthew 5, 44, love your enemies too. So not only do we lay our lives down for, you know, if my, if my wife, if I needed to lay down my life for my wife, that's kind of easy. I love the woman to death. Or my children, that's kind of easy. I, you know, I'd take a bullet for them. I'd Give my life for them. I, you know, donate organs for them. That's easy. Jesus calls us to love, love our enemies. And Jesus loved us as his enemies. Did Jesus not say from the cross, while he's being physically tortured, Lord, forgive them, for they know not what they do. If it was me, I'd be like, take them out right now, Lord. Send the lightning bolts. Bring the angels down. Snuff them all out. Big celestial steamroller comes over the hill and just squishes them all. But not Jesus. He prays that God would forgive them. Laying down your life is very tangible, but it's difficult. But this is the radical call of Jesus. And so is this. Now, this is a... This is uh, less difficult than laying down your life, but really important. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. I love you. You're so special. I'm praying for you. God bless you. Okay, what did I burn? Like five calories to say all of that? 
But what if I have to open up my wallet and give to you? What if I have to go without in order to provide for you? What if I have to give my time, my talents, my treasures? You know, we talk about the three T's in our church. We need to add a fourth one in light of what's going on in our society. How about my TP? Are you willing to give of that which is precious to you to bless and provide for others? Here we learn that love is actually a verb. See, in our society, I really think it's sort of framed up almost exclusively as an emotion. And then it's got to the point where it's it's not even defined anymore. Love is love. It's like, okay, I don't think you're allowed to define a word using a word. Didn't we learn that in grade school? It means nothing. Love is love. Love is, I fell in love or I, I feel love toward you. Well, what if you stop feeling love? You know, it's like in marriage, right? You love people on your, on your wedding day and your honeymoon for the first couple of years, but then you realize they're, they're kind of prickly. They, they have some, some deficits. They're not always nice. They wake up in the morning with bad breath. Like, what in the world? I never saw this in, you know, in the dating years. But now all of a sudden you realize there's imperfection lying in the bed next to you. Well, now what do I do? I don't, I, don't, I don't feel it. Love is a verb. Love is a verb. We continue to love on one another because this is how God loves on us. So now we have a radical contrast. We have Cain contrasted to Christ. Cain is the prototype, the model of the world. Christ is the incarnation of the kingdom of God, the opposite to the world. Jesus not only laid down his life for us, the ultimate expression of love, but he also loved us with his actions. He provided for us. He healed people. He lived a selfless life. And so... Laying down our lives is the most foundational aspect of love for others. Probably few of us in this life will literally be called to do that. But day by day, we have opportunities to do the other, which is to put our love into action. Now, if you look at verse 17... It reads, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against them, how does God's love abide in him? We could actually break that down into three questions. So if you look at the first statement, if anyone has, so what's a question that could come out of that? If anyone has, a question would be, hmm, what do I have that I can offer to others who are in need? What do you have? Now, what I have may be the same as what you have, but chances are we have some different things going on as well. You may have the gift of your presence, which is exactly what a person needs in their hour of need. The gift of money, the gift of time, you know, the gift of muscle to help you move, the gift of a pickup truck. You may have the gift of food. You may have the gift of paying for their tuition. You may have the gift of offering them a place to stay. Think about this. What are some of the gifts that God has entrusted to you? 
And really what he wants you to do is pass them on to others. What do we say in our church? We're called to be stewards. Right out of the gates, Genesis 127, we're made in the image and likeness of God. Like, what does that mean? Dominion, stewardship. We are God's representatives. I'm not the king, I'm just a steward. I'm just here to represent the king. And as soon as I become an owner, that crushes my ability to be a steward. So ownership is the enemy of stewardship. It's so foundational. We need to say this over and over again. Drive it into our thick skulls. Ownership is the enemy of stewardship. God has entrusted time, talents, treasures to us, not so we can just Yeah, I mean, there's an element to which we can enjoy some of that, but so we can steward those out for others. And what a blessing comes when we're able to give away our time, our talents, and our treasures for the benefit of other people, especially if there's no immediate benefit that's given back. So if anyone has, question would be, what do you have to offer to others in need? Second statement, seize his brother. A question arising out of that would be, what needs have you clearly seen? See, what I see may not be what you see. But you got two eyes. What are you seeing? What are you seeing going on in our world today? Panic, fear, people out of supplies, people not sure, chewing their nails down to the skin. You know what I have? I have the gospel. I see it. I have peace. I'm not afraid. Not afraid at all. I am totally content if God takes me today. Fine with that. Not afraid of death. Mildly afraid of the method. But not afraid of death. Why is that? It's because I'm a tough guy? No, no. It's because I have Jesus. So I have something that I can offer to other people. And many of you participating in our service today have that gift as well. What a beautiful gift. And we are the minority. We are a remnant that has that gift. Obviously, there's other things that we can offer as well. Third statement I want to draw your eye to is closes his heart. So this begs the question, what is the posture of my heart toward other people? Am I open-hearted? Or am I kind of suspicious? I don't really trust people. Are they trying to rip me off? Are they on the take? That that robs us of opportunities. Obviously, we don't want to be foolish and cast our pearls before swine, as the Bible says, just throw away our wealth to no end, our opportunities to no end. But if our lives are hyper-protective, we're always trying to hoard and keep and protect, that robs us of opportunities to bless others. And our heart is, in fact, closed to the world. This is a call to love others with deeds. So, you know, on one hand, we can say, God bless, blow the kiss. That's not really what God's calling us to. Really, it's a God bless, and here, let me help you. Let me assist you. Let me speak a word of hope and encouragement into your life. It's active faith that God is calling his people to employ. And again, COVID-19 is going to provide us with multiple opportunities, church, to put love into practice in a world that is desperately in need 
of a word of hope. So again, what needs do you have and how can you use your time, your talents, and your treasures to bless and encourage other people? So did you pass the test? Blessing others is a blessing to us. And the third thing I want to draw our attention to is verses 19 and following. And this is kind of taking the message in a little bit of a different direction. But what I want to say is that when your heart is disturbed with doubt, our love settles us. When your heart is disturbed with doubt, our love settles us. So what's interesting, I love how the Bible is so understanding of the common struggles of humanity. I understand we look different and we come from different backgrounds and we work in different places, but you know what I'm convinced of? People are so much alike, it's unbelievable. We're so much alike. We're so much alike. We're far more alike than we are different. And many people, even in the church, struggle with doubt. They doubt their faith. They're like, am I really saved? Am I really a Christian? I'm not really sure if I am. Like, did Jesus really do what he said he he did? And a lot of people struggle with doubt. And your flesh will often condemn you. Your heart and its unbridled emotions and its unconstrained thoughts will often lead you to dark conclusions that will challenge your assurance. And God knows all that about us. That many of us continue to struggle with doubt. The lie. Does God really love? Is he, did he really save? Well, check it out. Anticipating all that. God's word says this. Contrary to Romans 8.1, by the way, which says what? There is therefore no, no condemnation to those who are in Jesus Christ. Here's what it says. Verse 19. And by this, we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, notice whenever, it anticipates it's going to happen. God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what he pleases. Now, people love that little statement in the middle, whatever we ask, we get. But that's not like a blab it and grab it kind of verse. A name it and claim it kind of verse. This is in the context of, you know what? When I choose to love someone and lay down my life for them and sacrifice myself, my assurance goes through the roof. Because now I'm like, why did I do that? That's not natural to me. I'm kind of a jerk. I'm kind of selfish. I'm a hater. But I'm seeing God enlarge my heart to love people. So my heart's like, well, I don't know if you're a true Christian. I don't know. I don't know. Hey, but then I look at the fruit and I'm like, hey, fig trees bear figs. Apple trees bear apples. Christians bear love. And I have love going on. So I'm not going to listen to my fleshly heart, but I'm going to receive this promise from the Lord. Verse 23 And this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's obvious our salvation is grounded and founded in our belief in what Christ has accomplished. Not in our own efforts. Don't hear me wrong. Not in our own efforts. But then it says, and love one another just as he has commanded us. It's inevitable. You won't be able to help but love other people if God has transformed you. It's just going to happen. 
Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he's given to us. And by the way, the spirit works in our hearts and lives to bring that encouragement and conviction and that, that energy, that strength that we cannot rustle up from our own strength. So doubt is replaced with confidence in God when we obey him. By loving others, which is an act of obedience, God affirms the salvation that is ours in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. Really, really, really important truth for us to grab hold of. God's abiding spirit then affirms the authenticity of our faith as we abide in God. Church, the Bible never tells us to work for our salvation. But the Bible does tell us to work out our salvation. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Love is a means of working out our salvation. And not only is it a huge blessing to others, but it's an affirmation to ourselves that God has actually done a transformative work in our lives in spite of us, apart from us. So let's commit ourselves in a fresh way today to love other people as an expression of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if and when we do, I can tell you, it'll be like a breath of fresh air to a world that is used to meanness and hatred. And in addition to that, we will also be blessed as the salvation that is ours through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ alone is affirmed to have arrested us and transformed us and spiritually rebirthed us by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. 